Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully glad to have my friend Dr. Tim Mulhoff coming out of the program. He's written a brand new book called Eyes to See, Recognizing God's Common Grace in an Unsettled World. So when we encounter human suffering or personal tragedy, which we all do, it's interesting that Christians and non-Christians alike will sometimes utter the very same thing. Where is God? If God exists, then where in the world is he and why doesn't he show himself? And Tim does a fantastic job of of working through that very topic. He uh, talks about the doctrine of common grace to uncover how God works in ways that we don't always realize. So Dr. Tim Muehlhoff is a, a professor of communication at Biola University in California, and he's authored many books, um, including The God Conversation, I Beg to Differ, Winsome Conviction, and Winsome Persuasion, which received a 2018 Christianity Today Book Award in Apologetics and Evangelism. Tim, welcome. Oh, great to be back, Bill. Yeah, Thank thanks. You. I've really enjoyed going through this book, and so way to go. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So as I'm just going through it, I did find it interesting that, you know, if we're going to be able to talk to our non-Christian friends about God's response uh, to a world in turmoil— we have to determine how we envision God responding. Do we expect answers to prayers to be dramatic and undeniable or subtle? Now, I'm just quoting you out of your book, so you better have an yeah. answer to that. <laughs> well, and the only thing I would say is this just isn't for non-Christians. I mean, in the midst of a pandemic, I think even Christians are saying, I just thought God would have intervened by now and saved our family business, protected a loved one, health-wise. So I think all of us are searching for these answers, and one way is to appeal to common grace, which means God gives his undeserved blessings to both Christians and non-Christians to help us in a world that's fallen. I, I start the book with a joke, Bill, and you've, you've heard this joke, and I'm sure your listeners have. I love the joke. A man gets, yeah, a man gets word that there's a flash flood mm-hmm. happening, yep. and to take higher ground, he goes, I'm fine. Uh, God's going to save me. Well, sure enough, the waters rise. He's second floor now of his house, and a boat comes by, and they say, hey, jump in the boat. He goes, no, I'm good. God's going to save me. Now he's up on the roof. A helicopter comes by and says, jump you know, jump on the ladder. We'll take you to the sink. He goes, no, I'm good. God's going to save me. Well, he drowns. Now he's standing before God. He's mad. And he goes, why didn't you save me? And God says, what do you want? I sent you a radio message, a boat, and a helicopter. <laughs> you, but, but think about that joke for a second. Yeah. I think a lot of us are kind of like that. Like, like when I, I pray that you would save me from the flood or the pandemic or cancer, I was envisioning something that would be definitive, not a boat, not a helicopter, not a radio warning. Right. And so we are missing God's blessings because that boat, helicopter, and radio, that's God's common grace that he gives to everybody. Maybe that man was envisioning a divine hand coming down from heaven, lifting him up, or like cross winds separating the waters from his house. But if 
that's our only expectation. And again, I, I totally admit in the book, God can do supernatural things, which means there's no, uh, you're free of cancer and there was no chemo, no radiation, no anything, but that's rare that those things happen. And if that's the only way we think God can act, then I think we're going to be disappointed pretty regularly. Yeah. And then of course, Tim, we need discernment because you, can you imagine this guy on his roof texting his Christian friend saying, well, I really can't trust in the Lord. I'm jumping on this, uh, this ladder hanging down from a helicopter. Mm, you know what? But what a great point. He might get judged in certain circles. Absolutely. Yeah. Brother, you need to have faith. Don't oh, take the helicopter. Yeah. God's going to, God's going to show up, have faith. And it's like, Ooh, I don't, I don't like that test of faith because God, we know from the scriptures, right? He helps the poor. Jesus does by taking loaves and, and multiplying them. But then Antioch, the church in Antioch helped the poor by distributing wealth, fixing roads, helping the sanitation system. And I don't want to pit those two against each other. I think that's both God acting by the miraculous uh, loaves and fish, but also through Christians helping build a sanitation system. Mm-hmm. Dr. Tim Mulhoff is my guest. We're talking about his book, Eyes to See, Recognizing God's Common Grace in an Unsettled World. Uh, Tim, from your book, you say this idea of God's gifts coming down to us is certainly poetic, but it reminds us that God is aware of our struggles and responds by sending gifts. Would you talk more about how you illustrate this common grace? Well, thanks for pointing out about the illustration part, because the book really is designed to use pop culture and historical illustrations like the um, discovery of penicillin in Which, the 1920s. Great story, by the way. A, oh, great story. That's a great about story. Alexander Fleming. Yes. yes. So very quickly for your listeners, Alexander Fleming is a, a brilliant British lab technician, but he's just kind of messy. So he leaves for a two-week vacation, doesn't clean up, comes back, and is kind of ticked that his Petri dishes, some of them are covered in mold, but only some of them are half covered in mold. And he goes, now, why didn't it fully cover the entire Petri dish? Well, he studies it, comes up with the inklings of penicillin, writes an obscure paper, files it away. Now, fast forward World War II, the British government is concerned that soldiers are dying of disease in the bloody trenches of World War II. So uh, a, a researcher finds the paper tucked away and now penicillin is being mass produced in Britain and the United States. And we'd be in the dark ages today without penicillin. So the argument I make in the book is, could you say that was just a serendipitous moment? Sure. But could it be God nudging both the lab technician and the British researcher, giving them clues to help form penicillin? And that's the argument of the book. They're really meant to, these illustrations are meant to be conversation starters with friends, family members, coworkers. So you get to talk about God's goodness in the midst of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So very much like God to equip scientists and then give them nudges and things to see and to observe and to write about. And interesting that Fleming wrote this obscure paper, and it was, I think, a decade later, uh, Tim, that some guy was looking for uh, some uh, antibiotic and was going through all these obscure papers and came across Fleming's. It's just, it's a great, great story. And there's a great quote by Fleming who said, 
you know, I didn't mean to change medical history <laughs> no, by I accident, <laughs> but sometimes you just do. Now, that's always going to be the tension. Was this accident or was this God's common grace? But that's the kind of conversation I want to have with a friend to say, well, let me give you the reasons why I think this is coming from God. And the book is filled with these amazing discoveries, Bill, things I never even knew until I started digging into some of the histories of these things. Um, Let me give you another one. So we know that Jewish proverbs say life and death is in the power of the tongue. Mm -hmm. Do you know the Buddha almost said word for word the exact same thing? Now, uh, scholars say the chances of the Buddha coming across the book of Proverbs is almost nil, yet he almost verbatim says life and death, words have the power to kill and the power to heal is what I think the Buddha says. So now you have this maybe thing happening where God is implanting in um, Muhammad has an interesting saying in the Quran. You have Hindu uh, mystics almost saying the same thing. So is it possible that in today's argument culture, God has flooded thinkers from different traditions all to recognize the power of words to heal and destroy? And I'm arguing this is God implanting this thought, not just to Jewish writers, but to thinkers and all, even atheist thinkers like Sam Harris has this whole thing about the power of conversations. And if that doesn't work, we're going to move towards violence. So God's given us an idea that these words can be incredibly important to us, and we should use them in a virtuous way. Mm-hmm. Tim, let's talk about God's spotlight on the human condition. Um, that chapter I found fascinating, chapter three. Yeah, I love how God uses um, art to shake us, to to get us to think about things that we just normally wouldn't think about. So we're big fans of The Office, Mm -hmm. and and there's an interesting uh, episode, if if you're a fan of The Office as well, where Jim and Pam, the iconic romantic couple, finally do get married, but uh, they had an unplanned pregnancy. Jim is now working another job, his dream job in Philadelphia. So he's leaving her constantly uh, and they're doing marital counseling and it's not going well. I mean, you just think of the writers of the office and you're like, that's an interesting direction to go with Jim and Pam. Well, he forgets his umbrella one day, he's running off again to Philadelphia and she runs it out to him and uh, the taxi, and he gives her a hug, Bill, and she cannot hug in return. She just can't do it. And I say at marriage conferences, we've all been there, where the hurt's too much, the disappointment's too much, you just can't hug back. Well, they play a scene from their wedding where First Corinthians 13 is being read. Wow. Love is patient, love is kind, and she's thinking that in her head, and then she reaches and hugs him. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you just got a sermon on divine <laughs> love through a piece of art called The Office. Wow. That's amazing to me. And what a great conversation starter, because who doesn't like The Office? Right. That you can use The Office to say, hey, what did you think about that episode with Jim and Pam um, when it came to their uh, wedding vows in First Corinthians? I mean, it's just a nice, natural way to share biblical truth via art. Mm -hmm. You also had a wonderful illustration about Norman Rockwell 
and about how we need to uh, not only assess our surroundings uh, and other people, but we need to assess ourselves. And we'll talk about that after a short break. Dr. Tim Muehlhoff is my guest. His book is Eyes to See, Recognizing God's Common Grace in an Unsettled World. We'll be right back. My guest is Dr. Tim Muehlhoff. He's written a book called Eyes to See, Recognizing God's Common Grace in an Unsettled World. And during the break, I booked him for part two, and this is the first he's hearing about it right now. I'm, oh, so- say that, I'm sorry, Bill. Say that again. I missed that. It was such a quick <laughs> transition. Go ahead. <laughs> I said during the break, I booked him for part two, and this is the first he's hearing about it right now. No, I'm gladly, I'll gladly do part two. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's such good stuff. Let's talk about uh, this Norman Rockwell painting, which I found fascinating. And your book, Eyes to See, Recognizing God's Common Grace in an Unsettled World, is filled with really interesting stories that become great conversation starters as we share our faith with others. Well, let's go back to Aristotle real quick, who asked the question, what really makes us human? And he argued it was the ability to reflect upon ourselves. Like, we have a family pet, Raleigh. She's awesome. She's a rescue dog. Raleigh never, like, during the day thinks, hey, how good of a family pet have I been today? Like, have I really lived up to the expectations <laughs> my masters have of me as a pet? No, she's looking for her next meal. Right. But Aristotle argued, no, 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 the human animal is we actually reflect on ourselves like we do an object. So Norman Rockwell was one of the most beloved American illustrators and painters, and he did covers for the uh, Saturday Evening Post that spanned five decades. Well, they wanted to celebrate his great artwork, so they said, would you paint a portrait of yourself? So uh, your listeners can just simply Google Norman Rockwell, and the painting is called Triple Self-Portrait. Where the painting is Norman Rockwell sitting at a stool with a canvas. He's got a photograph of himself up in the left corner of the canvas, and he's looking in a mirror painting himself. So it's a triple self-portrait. Well, that is very interesting that as humans, we can step back from the human condition and analyze ourselves. And art really has a way of asking hard questions about the human existence like, were you familiar with the play Into the Woods? Um, a little bit. Yeah, it's a quirky play. It's a musical in which they take all of our favorite fairy tales, so Sleeping Beauty, let's say, right? Got uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. But they say, but we, we need to finish the story. So Snow White, in fact, does marry. Uh, I'm sorry, not Snow White. Um, Sleeping Beauty, I'm sorry, Sleeping Beauty does marry Prince Charming. But now Act Two is Prince Charming's a womanizer. 
Hmm. Like that didn't stop with her. So now she's alone and he's off doing all this womanizing. And it's kind of a critique on our falling in love with the idea of romantic love. And then Jack and the Beanstalk, right? The the giant was killed, but he was married to a, a female counterpart who's really ticked and comes down the Beanstalk and destroys a village. So what's cool about Into the Woods is to ask the question, what happens in Act 2 of our, all of our favorite myths? Mm. You know, finding the perfect love myth. Uh, your career will satisfy you myth. And so through a musical, it just kind of forces us to take a look at, am I buying into some really bizarre myths? Um, and, and, you know, we can kind of – Adele recently had a, con- uh, a concert – where she said in an interview with Oprah, she's kind of walking away from a pretty good, stable marriage because it doesn't make her fully happy. And that's an interesting comment. And I appreciate Adele's honesty and transparency that she wants to be fully happy. And this marriage, even though it's to her best friend, he's a stabilizing force, he's a great father, just isn't making her fully happy. I think the producers of Into the Woods would say to Adele, What's the myth you're buying into that there's a perfect marriage that's going to make you fully happy? And that's the power of art is it gets us to step back and analyze how we're reflecting on ourselves. Yeah, good point, Tim. Let's talk about the necessity of communication. It's say in your book, dialogue is to love what blood is to the body. That's yeah, from Roll Hall's wow. book and is yeah, the miracle of dialogue. Yeah, such a great quote. You know, honestly, today, I, I don't use this flippantly, but we are in a crisis today um, in a time in which Americans don't agree on anything. Ninety eight percent of us agree that incivility is a serious threat to this country. And 65 percent of us believe that we're at crisis levels of incivility. And so God knows that God knows that language is going to be used as a weapon against each other. Just read the book of Proverbs, and you see words are compared to the thrust of a sword. Uh, gossip can separate an entire city into two different parts. So God understands that words can be used like weapons and impart death. So he implants in us a vision of what virtuous communication, flourishing communication can actually look like. So I cite a study that was done uh, doing MRIs on individuals, the amygdala. How do you receive a compliment? Does the amygdala make any distinction between, if I walked up to you, Bill, and handed you a $100 bill, what would be your initial response to me just handing it to you and say, here you go, Bill, here's $100? It's about time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you'd be like, Hey, this is great. <laughs> like, I'm going to stop at Starbucks. I'm going to do this and that. Yeah. Well, here's... Oh, go ahead. No, no, that's exactly it. Oh, oh, so here's what they found, Bill, is all they did was compare getting money with getting a compliment. And did the amygdala fire in the same way? And the lead researcher came out and said... You know, receiving a compliment is almost on par with receiving a cash gift. So is it possible that God has hardwired the human brain to receive a compliment? Uh, Wouldn't that be awesome in today's argument culture that when you do get an unexpected compliment, 
your amygdala fires and registers it, and it actually can change your self-esteem and your self-perception. That's fascinating. I, I also saw something on the Internet about this experiment where the person would walk up with a camera and say, I am just wanting to tell people today that you're beautiful. And it was yeah. so funny to see 100% of people's faces light up completely. Yeah, oh, I love that too. And there's there's different versions of this on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite is in Brussels. So I don't know if you ever got a chance to go to Brussels, but it is like you're talking the most beautiful architecture in the world. So the one that I saw was an art student project where they walk up to a person and they said, hey, would you mind uh, taking my could I take your picture? Because my assignment is I need to photograph something beautiful and I'm choosing you. I think that's it. That's what I saw. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, are you kidding me? Are you not looking at this fountain and architecture? Right. And and the thing was he was filming them the entire time to get their reaction. Yeah. And people were blown away. Like you really want to, I'm the beautiful thing you want to photograph. Yeah. And people just came alive. This is called the Michelangelo effect from psychiatry that just like Michelangelo would, would uh, sculpt out of marble and come up with David that some have said is the most exquisite piece of sculpture we've ever seen. Well, compliments sculpt us in the same way that Michelangelo did when he produced David out of marble. So we can sculpt each other in very positive ways to our to our imparting of life, what the ancient writers of the book of uh, Proverbs said. So we need to know that, that when I give you a compliment or even a person I disagree with, I compliment them, I might as well be handing them a $100 bill because their amygdala just fired, and that can really produce life in today's uh, uncivil times. Mm-hmm. Tim, we only have a minute left. Um, when we talk about common grace, the question that always pops up is, well, why doesn't God act sooner? Mm. Well, I, I resonate with the frustration of that question, especially when we're, you know, a pandemic that just won't seem to go away. But God is pretty committed to having human partnership. Mm-hmm. So could he eradicate poverty? I suspect he can. But what does he do in the New Testament? He tells the church here's your top priority is neighbor love and caring for orphans and widows in distress. So he's wanting to address these issues and he's using human beings, both non-Christians and Christians via common grace to address the problems that we're facing today. Yeah. So, so interesting, Tim, thank you so much. It's always good to talk to you and I appreciate you coming on and I do want part two. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) And I also want the hundred bucks. You, uh, it was an illustration. Uh, <laughs> have a very Merry Christmas. Right, thanks, thanks so much. You too. Yep. Dr. Tim Muehlhoff has been my guest. Eyes to See is the name of his book, Recognizing God's Common Grace in an Unsettled World. All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, David Mathis is joining us. He's going to talk about the paradoxes of Christmas.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. So I was laughing with my guest David Mathis right during the break, and we were uh, chatting about when he was young, he and his sisters would play radio. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> and that made me laugh, and I think it made Rosie laugh. And now we're playing it for real. That's right. We, I mean, I think it was all the Gaither Vocal Band was one of the main. I mean, we played Sandy Patty, <laughs> Larnell Harris, yeah. Gaither Vocal oh, Band. Some good stuff. <laughs> yeah, and you guys would talk between songs like the DJs and all that, right? That's right. Just introduce the next song like we heard on the radio growing up oh, in Spartanburg, South Carolina. I love it. David Mathis is executive editor for DesiringGod.org, and he's also a pastor at Cities Church in the Twin Cities here. He's uh, not only a husband, but father of four, and he's author of the book Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. Now, tonight we're gonna, today we're going to talk about Advent, and you've pre- uh, prepared some wonderful thoughts about that. I can't wait to get into it. Bill, I love Advent. I, I, I wonder how many of us appreciate what an opportunity it is as Christians to have this three to four weeks each December leading up to Christmas and leading up to a new year Mm -hmm. where we rehearse some of the most basic, precious fundamentals of our faith, that God himself became human. And in that is a, that is a stunning paradox. Uh, A paradox could be defined in several different ways. The one way I like to talk about is things that seem to be at odds, but as you press in deeper, you see the coherence. You see that they go together. And as humans, one of our, what, instincts or assumptions would be that God is in this category over here that's mutually exclusive with humanity, and that God himself would become human without ceasing to be God is a new category that needs to defy our expectations. Mm -hmm. And that's right at the heart of a whole group of beautiful Christmas paradoxes. And uh, it's one of the reasons I love Advent, among others. Wow. So this playing radio as a, as a young kid really is paying off. Because <laughs> you've already started in a spectacular fashion. Uh, you've got us all very interested. Let's continue uh, our discussion of Advent here. So uh, maybe if I give you a, one of my favorite quotes. Or okay. maybe first, a, f- a few of the, the Christmas hymns and carols that capture us. I mean, it, sometimes people talk about the spirit of Christmas or the the magic of the season. And as Christians, we have a way to explain that that really provides answers. What is the this magic of Christmas that secular people just refer to and can't really give an explanation for? We as Christians know that at the heart of it, God himself became one of us to save us. And so some of the hymns that we sing during Advent that move us most, yet at the spe- spectacular truth, we could summarize it in John one fourteen. The Word became flesh. So, for one, O come all ye faithful. Word of the Father. It's the divine, eternal, second person of the Trinity. God himself, Word of the Father, now in flesh, appearing. Spectacular truth we sing in O come, O come, O come all ye faithful. And then, what child is this? Hail, hail, the Word divine Mm. word made flesh. And my favorite of all, I love Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's so bright. And the second verse has beautiful Christological theology. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, 
pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So this gets at the heart of why we love Christmas. And someone who captures it so well in church history is the great Augustine. <laughs> Bishop in the, in the 5th century. Uh, Augustine put it this way. Man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood at the cross, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life himself might die. And this is the spectacular paradox we get into and celebrate and stand in awe of and marvel at during the Advent season. All right. I love that line, by the way. That that quote you just gave is great. You know, the... uh, Another spot, maybe I can say this, a couple places where we get a glimpse of the Advent paradox in biblical texts. It's very important to have a biblical foundation, not just John one fourteen and the Word became flesh. A very familiar Christmas text for many of us is Luke 2, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are the words of the angel. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ... Christ is the long-awaited human king over Israel. He is Christ, the Lord. And Lord is God's special title. That's a title for God himself. Mm -hmm. So to say, the angel to announce at Christmas that this baby born in Bethlehem is not only Christ, the long-anticipated human king, the Messiah, but Christ, the Lord. It foreshadows what's to come as all throughout Luke's gospel, he shows us that Jesus is not only the human king, but he's God himself. Or here's how Paul puts it in his letter to the Colossians, Colossians 2.9. In him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. (laughs) Amazing. Wow. That all the fullness of God dwells in this person who has (laughs) taken on our human flesh at Christmas. So in the Advent season, we are not marking and celebrating small things. <laughs> we are celebrating the very heart, some of the greatest wow. mysteries and this great paradox at the very heart of the universe that God himself would choose to enter into his creation to be one of us and save us by going to the cross for us. It's also a great um, J.L. Packer quote, and you've got that. I would love for you to share that as well. I do love Jab Packer, the late Jab Packer, a modern-day Puritan. One of the ways he talked about this great paradox at the heart of Christmas and the Advent season is he said that the Almighty God appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk <laughs> like any other child. Isn't that an amazing thought? Yeah, amazing. He says, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Mm -hmm. So uh, as much as we love our fiction, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, some of these great fiction stories that people love, nothing in fiction is so wonderful, so fantastic as the truth, (laughs) the real truth, the real world that we Mm -hmm. live in and celebrate at Christmas, this truth of the incarnation. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's tremendous. You know, you've got four kids. I'm sure there was times when you would hold your kid up and then kind of throw him up in the air a little bit and catch him. Oh, yeah. But doesn't every right. dad that's do that? Right. Can you imagine Joseph doing that with God? <laughs> it's a remarkable thing. That that gets at the paradox, it Bill. It does. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Of Mary holding God in her arms and Joseph tossing God right. into the air and catching Playfully. him. Playfully, <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Oh, what a, what a remarkable thing that teaches us about our world. It does. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, Let's continue. So if, if I could give you one more text, okay. and maybe my favorite biblical text on this paradox, it would be Revelation chapter 5. Okay. And, and Revelation chapter 5 is really important because the scene is being set as John receives this vision, the Apostle John, in chapters 4 and 5, that is, it's setting the program for the rest of the book. So he, he's, he's about to, to find out here in, in chapter 5 how the rest of History is going to unroll in verse in chapters six to twenty-two. The rest of the book, and and John looks and sees at the beginning of chapter five that there is a scroll in the hand of the one who sits on the throne. So he sees he sees God on the throne, and it sounds like he doesn't see the entirety of God. This is like Isaiah in, in Isaiah chapter six that the that the hem of God's robe fills the temple. In one sense, Isaiah sees God. In another sense, he only sees the hem of his robe. <laughs> that God is so majestic and big. And, and here, he sees a scroll in a hand, and maybe maybe doesn't see the entirety of God. The scroll in the hand, and he wonders what this scroll is. You know, what does God have to say to the world? What does God have to say to John, to us, to the hosts of heaven, where there are four living creatures worshiping God and elders leading angelic hosts in worship in heaven. What's in this scroll written on front and back? And so the call goes out, who's worthy to open the scroll? And the answer is no one's worthy. Not the four living creatures who are spectacular, not the elders who lead the heavenly worship, not the angelic host, no angel is worthy, not Michael, not Gabriel. In fact, God himself doesn't open this scroll. So not the Father, not the Spirit. And perhaps John begins to wonder, uh, what about Jesus? And John, John has given his life as a disciple of Jesus. He's in exile on the Isle of Patmos as a disciple of Jesus. And he, maybe he begins to wonder about Jesus. And it says in Revelation 5 that he began to weep. He is so moved. He is so eager to find out who's worthy to open the scroll. And the elder turns to him. I love this moment. This this is a paradox, one of the paradoxes of Christmas. I love this moment. The elder in heaven turns to him and says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the seals. (laughs) And then here comes the paradox. John turns, he's just heard about this lion. So he's turned, he's looking for a lion. He turns and looks and he sees a lamb standing as though he had been slain. And so hearing of the lion in verse five, seeing the lamb in verse six, there's this beautiful paradox of what we celebrate each advent, that the lion of Judah became lamb for us. He is both lion Andy, his lamb. Andy, his lamb. He's, it's not one or the other. It's not like, oh, he ceases to be lion to be this lamb that mm-hmm. would provide for his people. But in all his lamb-like gentleness, 
and obedience to his father and provision of himself by giving himself, he doesn't cease to be lion. And the lion is all the more beautiful because of this paradox of also being lamb. Well, that wisdom is coming out of David Mathis. Now, David, we're going to go to break, but because you used to play radio when you were younger, why don't you take us into break? All right. <laughs> so you'd say something like, uh, you're listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. His guest today is David Mathis. We'll take a short break and be right back. Go ahead. <laughs> Give it a try. <laughs> you are listening to the Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Enjoy your drive. We are talking with uh, local pastor David Mathis. We'll be back soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll kick us off. Okay, go ahead. You know, one thing that uh, no, I... No, 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 we got to welcome, welcome everyone back. Oh, oh. Is that you or me? I think you should do it. Okay. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> so I'm glad to have Pastor David Mathis with us today. And uh, Still learning. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, we're talking about the uh, paradoxes of Christmas, and I, I think it's going to be great. We're going to get to the way in which the paradoxes of Christmas meet the longings of our heart. You know, this is one of the things I, I do love about Advent is how... Advent prepares our hearts to welcome Jesus, appreciate him, love him, appreciate him, and, and enjoy him. Um, so Advent is, we don't only see this beauty of Christ in him being lion and lamb, you know, God himself born in human flesh, but that meets particular longings and aches in the human heart that God designed from the beginning to be fulfilled and satisfied in Jesus. And so in that Revelation 5 passage where we, we talked about uh, seeing that the, hearing the announcement from the elder in heaven that the, the lion of the tribe of Judah had conquered, there, there is a desire in us for greatness. We want to have great friends. We want to know great people. We want to admire great people and benefit from their protection, their provision, uh, that they would give and sustain life. So we have a kind of longing mm. for greatness uh, in, in our human hearts. And so we, we often do this part of our celebrity culture that is, is prone to kind of make people into heroes, even when they're not worthy of it. We want to make heroes. Like with something in our hearts wants to see people as great. And then very soon we quick to tear that down and pop the bubble, right? Mm -hmm. But there is this desire in us for, for majesty, for might, and uh, the philosopher Blaise Pascal in the 17th century talked about what he called the infinite abyss in the human heart that we try to satisfy with all these finite wonders and the worst of the world. We have uh, There's this idol factory in our hearts, this infinite abyss that we try to satisfy with the world. And he says the infinite abyss was made for the infinite God. Mm -hmm. So God means for the human heart to be satisfied in him. So the, the first thing to say, I think, about this Advent longing that we seek to fulfill in Jesus is that unless he is God himself, he will not fulfill the longings of our souls that long for greatness and long for majesty and long for might 
that is fulfilled in this lion of Judah in Jesus. That's fantastic. Thank you for that as well. I'm just pondering that because I've heard that comment by Pascal so many, many times, but that infinite abyss is, can only be filled by the infinite God. I've never quite heard it that way. And the, uh, and I, I do think some of us have, have maybe heard this. Uh, some, some need to hear it for the first time because perhaps you've, you've grown up in a, in a church or just the own weakness of your soul. You have not thought of, of God as himself being worthy of your admiration and satisfaction and delight <laughs> and enjoyment. It's, it's a new category to think that God himself, not just what he gives, not his benefits, but that God himself, that the giver himself could be the great object of our joy. That can be a fresh thought for people. And then <laughs> it opens our eyes throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms and elsewhere, uh, to God being the great treasure, the pearl of greatest price, the surpassing value. And uh, many of us have been awakened to that at a certain point in our lives, but the normal course of life, the cares of this world, choke it out. Mm-hmm. And it is often so important to have that reminder, to to refocus, to reset. Advent's a great time for that, for resetting, to remember something that may be old news to you, but needs to be a new reality in the heart mm-hmm. that God himself, not what he gives, not the frills of Christmas and what you might receive and uh, holly jolly and all is merry and bright, but that God himself is the great object of our joy. And that's a, a critical first starting place in finding ourselves satisfied in Jesus. David, I have a, a obviously a, a deep desire to grow in my understanding of God's word. So I had this little formula in my head, I don't know, this year, where I said I want to be focusing on 60% of my energy finding um, new revelation that God's Word will bring to me, uh, new understanding, and and enlightening my eyes that I may know Him better. But I also have to spend about 40% uh, reviewing what I've Mm -hmm. already known, what I know, and go back and say, let me remind myself what I already know. And try and, I don't know if 60-40 is a good ratio or if I should be 70-30 or whatever. Any thoughts you have on that? I, you would know best the ratio for you. Yeah, I think, you know, for me it's 60-40. And, uh, if I don't go back and, and review, I realize I have forgotten. Conceptually, you are right on something that I think is, is so critical in the Christian life. The, the Bible is a big book, and we 21st century people uh, aren't generally great at knowing our Bible cover to cover, and maybe not like they did 200, 300 years ago. And so for all of us, there is so much more to be familiar with. And reading through the Bible, even after 10 or 20 years of reading through the Bible, you're going to find things that I'm I'm pretty sure I read Obadiah before, but I sure (laughs) don't remember this verse. Right. (laughs) And and so uh, God does feed us regularly with, with fresh things like that. And another critical part of the faith is not moving on from what God has already shown us in Christ. That the, the most important realities uh, that God Himself is our, is our Creator, that He that He came in the person of His Son, that He died for us, that that gospel message that is at the heart of the Christian faith, that is critical for becoming a Christian, is also the the reality that we live in day in and day out. We don't move on from the gospel. The gospel is big enough, deep enough, high enough, rich enough 
to live the rest of your life and all eternity Amen. in the glories of what God has done for us in Christ. Mm-hmm. And so as we become aware of new biblical information and details and verses, we do so in the sphere of God's grace, never tiring of what he's accomplished for us in Christ. And that's set in fresh light by new passages, you know, th- things that feel fresh and new to us help renew our own sense of God's power and God's grace for us in Christ. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about how we long for meekness and nearness. Okay, so this is, this is very important. Having, having talked about the infinite abyss, there's more that we need to say at Christmas because God came in the person of his son and took on humanity. And, and an important question you might say is, well, what, you know, if God, he's infinite, infinite in power, he's even spectacular in his mercy and grace, so what is, what do we, what's added by God becoming man? This, this is an interesting question. Is anything added because God became man in, in the person of Jesus Christ? And the answer is, to humans, yes. From, from God's own perspective, there's nothing to add. God's infinite. But for us, we're, we're human. <laughs> we need some accommodation. We need, we need some help. We need, some, we need God to move near us. And so when God himself becomes man in the person of Jesus, we see not only the glory of his majesty as God, but now we begin to see the glory of meekness. And we, we all know that we long for more than greatness. We want to know great people. We want to have friends. We want to have brothers. We want to have companions who are in our circumstances. Is that God wired this into the human heart as well. So these two things in tension, we want to know great people we can admire who can do great things and we can benefit from it. And at the same time, we want to have brothers, we want to have friends, somebody near us, somebody there with us. And this is the remarkable thing that is added for us. It's not added to God as a divine glory, but for us as humans, in God himself becoming man in Jesus, there is human glory now that we see. There is divine excellency, human excellency added to divine excellency so that we marvel all the more at Christ Jesus in his amazing humility, for for one. Um, God himself is, we wouldn't talk about God himself as being humble. Humble is a, a creaturely virtue. To be humble means to rightly see your lowliness, your position, your creatureliness, in relation to God himself. Here's the amazing thing. When God becomes man, he can then demonstrate perfect humility, perfect meekness. Jesus was the most humble, meek man who ever existed because he was perfect man. And so we see a glory in Christ as humans that is more than, is added to, because God chose to come to us in the person of Christ. So good. Um, David Mathis is my guest. We're um, talking about preparing our hearts for Advent and the many paradoxes of it. Um, so we've just got a couple minutes left, uh, David. Maybe we can talk about in Jesus, we have it all in one person. So let me add to that. So, so we just said with the infinite abyss in our, whole, in our souls being satisfied by God, that being added to yes. with God becoming man in Christ, which you celebrate at Christmas, there's another spectacular addition in that in Christ, we have all that in one person. That's fantastic.
It is so, so good. There isn't only majesty to admire and meekness to admire. There is majesty and meekness in one person. And so when we admire his greatness, we do so all the more because of his nearness. His greatness is more great because he's our friend, our brother. He's one of us. And when we enjoy his nearness to us as one of us, as a fellow human, we enjoy it all the more because of his greatness. So because he is, he's lamb and he has drawn near us to save us, we can enjoy his lion-like majesty, his power without trembling and fear. I mean, we should be in great fear apart from God drawing near to us mm-hmm. as the lamb. And the final paradox we did not really get to, but we're unfortunately out of time, is that he was born to die. That's right. That's uh, one of those verses that maybe we scratch our heads at Christmas and what child is this? Nail, spear will pierce him through. The cross right. be born for me or you. Pretty radical talk for a little baby. It is amazing. And yeah. it belongs at Christmas, not amen. just Good Friday. Yeah, amen. David, thank you so much. I so appreciate you coming into the studio and talking to us and giving us this powerful message. David Mathis has been my guest. He's the executive editor for DesiringGod.org and pastor at Cities Church. He's also author of Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.